Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki. I'm here with John Mitchell. We're talking through the coronavirus pandemic, getting our college football discussion on despite our isolation. So I'm here in Pennsylvania. John is down there in Alabama. We're here to talk all things college football. How are things going for you, John, this week? Going good. Looking forward to, to talking with you. It's nice to, you know, while we're being socially distant, to still be able to converse with our friends and stuff like that. So, you know, always looking forward to doing this. Amen to that. And, you know, first and foremost... I, I, I've definitely heard talk, both with, you know, some of the stuff we've brought up that sounds very doomsayer, as well as, you know, things more generally that people have talked ar- about around, you know, the media and talking around the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen sort of skepticism of, about what's going to happen with the, the 2020 season. And that's some of what we're going to talk about today. But we also want to liven it up, you know. And I think one way to do that with sports not going on anywhere really right now, unless you're a big fan of Taiwanese baseball, is the fact that we've seen a lot of great documentaries coming out. And, and one that's been on, you know, pretty much every sports fan's radar, whether or not you've actually watched it, is The Last Dance. Um, I'll be honest, I have not watched it yet. I, I, I'm pretty sure, based on what I've seen you tweeting out, John, that you've seen at least some of this documentary. Yeah, I've watched every episode so far. Well, there you go. That's the answer to it, folks. I I know you're much more a basketball guy than I am. Um, You know, they put out a hockey documentary like that. I'd probably jump on it. But that's just a consequence of growing up around a hell of a lot of snow, I think, and ice and having a dad who could flood a rink every year. So, you know. Absolutely circumstances but we're going to talk a bit about that and and go into a couple of segments after we talk a bit of business about the kinds of college football stories we'd like to see obviously the last dance is talking about the chicago bulls dynasty and the last dance is obviously their 97 98 season at the end of their second three-peat And so we're going to look at dynasties that we'd love to see a last dance kind of treatment toward. And uh, I think it should be a lot of fun. But, you know, before we do that, John, obviously we got to go into business. So I'm sorry. But, you know, you've obviously felt the strain of the coronavirus pandemic that's, that's ongoing I, you know, I, I'm still dealing with it here in State College, and it, it, it's something that's going on in everybody's mind. We've heard, you know, athletic directors coming out, we've heard conference commissioners coming out with sort of varying discussions around all of this since we talked two weeks ago, and, and ultimately... The thing I think that that might be most interesting to me is sort of 
this discussion that actually came up, it, you know, at the time we're talking now, I think this was almost two weeks ago, but there was an article that came up on set at Saturday Down South by Chris Wright and was talking about basically the gig is up with the NCAA. And the fact is, is if they bring college football players back early, if they bring them back to campus before any other students, you've basically seeded the high road in any possible argument that these players aren't employees in some way, shape, or form. And I thought that was fascinating. I, I think it's something we need to talk about in terms of this sort of, you know, how we frame quote-unquote student-athletes. And I, I really, you know, I've been wanting to pick your mind. I know we weren't able to meet last week, but I've been wanting to pick your mind since I read this about what you're thinking, especially about, you know, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bullsby coming out and talking about the fact that these players are students and if college is not in session, they're not having contests. And that's, you know, that's the commissioner of the Big 12 that's saying that. So what do you think that really means for the upcoming season? That sounded like, with Bowlesby to me, it sounded like a CYA, <laughs> right? A, a cover your ass kind of statement about that because, you know, the, the Saturday Down South article that uh, you referenced, I mean, it, it is definitely fascinating to the point that you know, he even says in the article that, you know, college athletics is basically under the pretense of amateurism, right? And these are professional athletes who aren't paid because, you know, they're paid in experience or whatever. That's been the argument forever. So, yeah, I mean, Bob Bowlesby has a point when he says that if students aren't on campus, we can't have college football or college athletics in general. But, you know, one thing that I noticed in the article that I thought was interesting, too, and I'm kind of surprised that someone else hasn't come back and, and said this yet, and if they have, I guess I just missed it. But, you know, you could make an argument if you're Bowlesby or anyone in a position of power for college athletics right now that online classes would still classify everyone as students. So, obviously, they wouldn't be on campus, so you're forcing these kids to take a risk that every other student wouldn't be taking, right, by coming to, to the campus to be around. This is the thing with college football. We talked about how it might be harder for football to come back than other sports because there's just so damn many players on the team. You know, you're talking about 75 to 100 players when you talk about the practice squad guys. Then you're not even counting all the coaches, support staff, trainers, all that that have to be on the field at one time. But that makes it that much more challenging. But it's definitely fascinating, and it would be interesting if this is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back for the NCAA, because the NCAA stands to lose a lot of money if college football isn't up and going in the fall. Well, yeah, and you know, you think about it. We have other pro sports that are talking about coming back. You have the... NBA and NHL seasons that were suspended mid-season. <laughs> These both obviously want to get going again. You know, they want to have some kind of playoff. They don't want to throw away the money that comes with seeding a playoff, you know, as well. Um, 
Major League Baseball with looking at different scenarios to basically play extended spring training in a couple of facilities in Arizona and Florida, you know, AL and NL, or however they end up dividing it geographically. And, you know, you you have soccer leagues around the world that are talking about how in the hell they're going to determine the end of their seasons. Already the Dutch League has, you know, basically said... We stop here. There, basically, there's it's a null result. There's no champion declared. The season stops where it stops, and we start again where we were last year. And you know, different leagues are having to deal with these sorts of scenarios. But one with college football, you even look at football teams. You know, an NFL roster is a 53 man roster, and what is it, 10 or 12 extra practice? squad players that you get to have something like that yeah i don't know the exact number it's something around there though and so you know you think about there's 85 scholarship players on an fbs team but pretty much you know you even look at the akrons and the you know new mexico states of the world and the massachusetts of the world and they're playing with 107, 110-man rosters as well. You know, whether or not you're paying for scholarships for every one of those players, you're still dealing with the active cost, the operational costs of 107, 110 players on your squad as an FBS school. It's just the nature of the game. And dealing with that many players, you know... Two-thirds, again, the number of players that you would be for the NFL. And even that's probably largely a pipe dream. You know, you think about these soccer teams that are playing with 23-man rosters. You think about baseball that has 25-man active rosters. NBA teams are, what, like 10 players a team? 15. 15 is the, you know, you probably have like 10 on the bench at a time or whatnot, 11 on the bench at a time, and then... But you have 12 that can be active and 3 inactive, I believe. I knew you'd have the answers for me, John. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, you're dealing with magnitudes of difference here. And that's not to even lump on the fact that whether or not they're taking online classes, the fact is, is the only people, you know, at least here at, at, at Penn State where I'm, I, I'm anchored at, and at Oregon, where I used to be at, so I know it on both sides of the country at the very least, because I get all the mails as an alumnus of the University of Oregon, and now that I'm here at, at Penn State, I, I, I get all the emails as somebody on campus. And in both cases, you know, the only people that are on campus are essential personnel to make sure that the few students that have nowhere else to go are still able to get by. And that's, you know, everybody else is off campus. It's remote learning. You're like, I can't even go to my office at rec hall and, you know, pick up books without emailing several people and arranging a time and getting clearance to do so at this point. Um, And so to think that you're bringing 110 individuals in addition to coaching staffs that 
you know, live in town or live outside town and are going to be commuting back into campus more regularly or back to the facilities more regularly. You've got all of these situations going on and then, you know, you add on the fact that they're saying, well, we'll get by with it by, you know, testing and testing regularly and, and contact tracing and, you know, you throw every buzzword out there with the NCAA but the fact is, is there's no, like, coherent plan as to how that's going to line up at basically any one of the 130 FBS schools. Not one of them has put out a, this is our 30-point plan to make sure that our players are absolutely safe, and this is where we're getting the test from, and we're going to have this many by this point to make sure that we can test them this many times a week or whatnot. And honestly, you know, the fact is if you're going to have 110 players together and you're going to have coaches of varying ages who are coming on and off campus and interacting with people in different communities at various stages of opening up their their societies again, you've got you've got the ingredients for a huge damn mess is basically what it comes down to. And it, this is exactly what I talked about in the article I wrote last month about 1918 and the Spanish flu. It might have been earlier this month. It was sometime that on Saturday Blitz I wrote this in one of my recent Sunday morning quarterback articles. But it, it, it it's one of those things where that second that second wave is worse than the first. It, it's it, unless you actively tamper it down longer than you think is necessary the wave comes back harder than it it should and that's the one thing I'm really worried about with any of these situations and the thing that I think is interesting is as soon as you say that it's necessary to bring football players back to campus because I'm sorry, but I don't think it's going to be nearly as necessary for them to bring back volleyball players or swimmers or track and field athletes as it's going to be to bring back college football players. And it really speaks to the drive of revenue that these players generate. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, revenue sports are what allows those other sports like swimming and volleyball and track and field to be able to operate. And we've already seen bits and pieces of some of those non-revenue sports being canceled for, you know, an indefinite period of time because of this. So I think it's interesting. I think, you know, the numbers is what worries me the most because you can talk about testing, but getting that many tests that frequently for each of the 130 FBS institutions. I mean, I just, math-wise, I can't get that number to work in my head for that to be even possible. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it is, obviously, because that's probably our only path to any sense of normalcy. And, um, you know, and it, it looks more and more every day like there'll be no fans, too, in the stands for any college football games this season that end up taking place. Every expert that I've read anything on seems to think it'll be end of 2021 before we see fans back in the stands again, just because, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, your 80-man roster down on the field, and it's another thing to have 100,000 people 
in the stands also cheering on the games and how much more the disease can spread in that capacity. So it, you know, every, everything that that's happened in the last few weeks and months and stuff, every little thing just makes me feel worse about our outlook on the, on a potential season. So I don't really want to dwell on it too much longer because it's kind of depressing. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing about, you know, the idea around testing that's really interesting is if you look at, you know, how many people have actually been tested compared to the population that's there, or how many tests that have been issued compared to the population. And keep in mind that total number of tests include people that have been tested multiple times. This is the number of tests that have been issued. It, it, as of the time we're speaking, is basically around 5.7 million. In a country of 328 million people, you know, we've issued... It, we're just over 1% of the population tested. We're not even at 2% right now. And that's if you considered every one of those tests being to a unique individual, which is not the case, you know, because you have to test again to make sure you're getting past. And it, 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 it's an interesting thing to think about in that regard. Where are all these tests going to suddenly come from? You think about it, a hundred and, you know, I calculated this when I looked at, at, at the EA sports game, but it was something around 21, 23,000 individual athletes. And if you think you're going to have to have tests, if you're only bringing back FBS football, and the thing is, is if you're bringing back FBS, how can you hold back FCS or Division Two football or Division Three? You know, we think about this as revenue sports, but if you set a precedent with one, you have to, you can't rightly say it's safe for one of them and not the other unless you're automatically seeding the point that, hey, these are employees and these people, you know, the people at Division One FBS, these are employees and even the FCS level, they might be employees to some extent. In the Division Three level, these are amateurs who are not getting a scholarship for football. And, you know, you might have to draw a line in the sand like that, but as soon as you do, the NCAA automatically sees that point that they, they were so graciously granted in that 1984 court hearing from the Supreme Court that mostly dealt around television rights, but also basically gave them the explicit legal precedent to, to do whatever the hell they wanted in terms of defining amateurism. I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm kind of ranting here about that, but it, it, this is really the, that, that's the biggest concern. And I think that's what the, the article we, we sort of referenced at the beginning of this gets at the heart at it is that as soon as you bring these players back on campus, you know, if all you're offering is online classes at that point and teachers and students are not back in physical classrooms, you're basically seeding that these are essential employees in an essential industry 
who are performing an essential function and deserve an essential hazard pay wage at that point. That sounds like a good compromise. Let's have football and let's give checks to all the players. You know, I I think if you're going to say that you have to bring them back, I don't see how you can't do that. And, you know, I, the NCAA has obviously opened it up recently in talking about how, you know, they've pushed ahead on the name, image, and likeness, you know, rights. And I, I, I would not be surprised if they... Uh, I would be surprised if they actually went through with it mind you but I think in a just world they would push through and say that these players deserve emergency pay if you're bringing them back to campus before any other student yep I agree completely well on that note everybody I think it's about time to go grab another beer get yourself your beverage of choice use the restroom whatever you need to do we're going to take a quick break here and when we come back We're going to discuss some last dance scenarios, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking college football as we always do every week. We're going to put a bit of a twist on our next couple of segments here. Have a little bit of fun now that we're all sitting at home and not certain when the college football season will be going again and what it will look like. So we're going to look back in time, as pretty much everybody in every sport is doing right now. And we've seen it especially with ESPN and, you know, their NBA coverage and their documentary coverage around Michael Jordan, the 97-98 Chicago Bulls, and The Last Dance. And so what, what we've got concocted here for you all today is a discussion about the sorts of dynasties that we'd love to see a last dance treatment about. Like, what kind of 10-part documentary would just blow your socks off in terms of a, a college football dynasty? And, you know, John and I thought about this a bit of a different way. Obviously, um... You know, we both like to think about historical college football. I decided to stay entirely with historical college football. Whereas, you know, John kind of plays all over the map. And I love kind of both approaches here. But we're going to offer our top six stories that each of us would love to see. We're going to break this up in a couple of segments. So you'll get a half dozen in each case. But... You know, no particular order here, John. I'm not going to ask for your, like, least favorite, the best favorite, or chronological or whatever, but throw one out there. What's a story you'd absolutely love to see get this last dance treatment? So I had mine kind of ready to go in chronological order, so I'm going to stick with that. But the first one uh, that I had was 1978 Ohio State. Um you know, the end of the Woody Hayes era in Columbus, Ohio. No one knew it was going to be the end of the Woody Hayes era, which kind of makes it even more fascinating, I think, uh, from the outset. But, you know, obviously Woody Hayes, one of the most legendary coaches in college football history, had an incredible run with the Buckeyes, won 205 games over his 25 years there. Um, You know, the last few years 
of Ohio State football under Hayes probably wouldn't be considered dynastic, I guess. Um, you know, the year before they finished, I think, 12th in the AP poll, or 11th in the AP poll, excuse me. But they had, before that, you know, a string of top five finishes for basically a decade straight before that. So they were one of the dominant teams in college football. That 78 season, they kind of slipped back a little bit and started becoming more, I guess, ordinary instead of the, the great team they had been. And obviously the fascinating story is when, you know, they get to the Gator Bowl and play Clemson, and then Woody Hayes punches a Clemson player on the sideline. Oh, good old uh, you know. Charlie Bauman. Yeah. And then ends up obviously being terminated from his post because of that. So I think it would be interesting to get, you know, obviously that story has been told before, but just more background on that with Hayes' temperament the entire season. Because it was, you know, not the first time something like that could have happened in 25 years he was coaching Ohio State, you know. So what kind of led his temperament to that point was the fact that, maybe Ohio State just wasn't as good as they had been anymore, and that was starting to wear on him at that point. So I think that would be a really fascinating team to, to follow. Well, certainly. And, you know, I think the thing that's, that's fascinating about this last dance concept is that as much as it's about the last dance, it's about the build-up to that as much as it is anything else, you know? I mean... You, you don't hear you know you don't hear bitching about Isaiah Thomas unless you're talking about a little bit before '97. Yeah, the, the the premise of it is obviously that '97 '98 season, but they talk about the background of everything leading up to it. So in any kind of case like this, you would see the seasons before and everything like that. You know, and what's fascinating to me too, Zach, about the last dances for the Bulls. Their dynasty ended on top. That's not something you normally see. Yeah. Like, we saw the end of the Bulls dynasty because, you know, Scottie Pippen left, Michael Jordan retired, Phil Jackson went to the Lakers. So everybody knew that dynasty was over right then. We typically see dynasty die in real time, right? We see the losses begin to pile up, injuries take hold of players and stuff like that. But the Bulls dynasty ended with a six championship in eight years. And I think that's really fascinating. And I, there's not really on this list of the, it's very difficult to find an equivalent of that in college football. Uh, I do have one, I won't spoil it, but I think that was one of the more fascinating things where I was trying to think about something that compared to the run the Bulls had. Uh, I certainly think that's a really fascinating one, and the way the story would be structured, I think it'd be awesome to look at that backstory, because sort of the rise and fall of Woody Hayes is one of those arcs that deserves a, an incredible treatment. It really does. I don't think anybody's done it in documentary form in a way that does that entire story justice. So, I'm with you there. And honestly, the first choice I'm going to throw back at you is right from that same era. And, you know, I, pay, I, I technically pegged this at 1979 USC for my last year in this dynasty. Um, 
But it's interesting because that year is really the last year when John Robinson holds on to that sort of fading aura of the John McKay era at USC. And, you know, I think this is a story that could tell both of those because, you know, Robinson is an assistant under McKay for a couple of years. He's the offensive coordinator, I believe, for three years there. Yeah, 72 through 74 to get that very, you know, sort of specifically down. Um, he, you know, he goes to the NFL for a year, but then comes back as the head coach and takes over after McKay is done. And, you know, that whole, whole string, you know, McKay obviously has the early success. He has the national championship his third year there in 62. But I think really the story picks up with Robinson getting on campus in 72 USC winning national championships in 72 and 1974. McKay going, or, or Robinson rather, going off campus in 1975 to work as the a position coach. I think he's the receivers coach for the Oakland Raiders that year. It's some position coach on the offense. Um, but then he comes back in 76 and takes over for, for McKay and Robinson... You know, he ends up going 11-1 that first year, finishes second in both polls, wins the Rose Bowl, wins the national championship in 78, and then finishes behind that, you'll love this, the perfect Alabama team in 1979 that went 12-0. But USC finishes 11-0-1 that year, you know, the one... Uh, kind of a surprise 21-all tie against Stanford at the Coliseum. And, you know, that's a Stanford team that goes 5-5-1. And uh, so, you know, kind of a perfect symmetry there. And you kind of see a tapering off because during Robinson's left, I I think you captured the idea of a dynasty perfectly because very few of them finish on top where everybody goes out with a bang you know that 79 usc team the trojans finish 11 0 and 1 they're right there in both poles behind the crimson tide but then you know the last couple of years that robinson is in town they go 8 2 and 1 they go 9 and 3 they go 8 and 3 so they they lose eight games and tie another over his last three seasons. That's not vintage USC football by any means. And, I, you know, I think really that stretch from 72 to 79, you can really see the, the excellence that Robinson brings there, and then the magic kind of goes away. Because, you know, the magic seasons in, in McKay's later years are because Robinson is there as the offensive coordinator in a lot of ways. Yeah, I found funny that we both went very similar eras right away uh, to start out. So I like that pick a lot. I would definitely be fascinated to, to learn more about that team for sure. Um, do you want me just to swing on into the next one? You know, bat away, John. Why not? All right, so the one that I thought of that was, I think, most similar to the Bulls because you could argue that the end of this dynasty happened after a national championship was 1997 Nebraska. 
Um, Tom Osborne's last season in Lincoln as the Nebraska head coach, leading the Cornhuskers to a perfect season, their third title in four seasons. Um, and, you know, he retired after the end of the year. Uh, so that was the one that just felt the most similar to the Bulls dynasty, I guess, uh, because, you know, Osborne hung up. Obviously, Frank Solich had some success with the Cornhuskers in the years, uh, in the next couple of years before things kind of went a little bit off the rails and then things really went off the rails under Bill Callahan. And, you know, up until now <laughs> for Nebraska, nothing's really been the same. They haven't won a championship since, um, or a national championship since, I should say. So I thought that was interesting. There's also some interesting players from that team, like Scott Frost, for instance, was the quarterback of that Nebraska team. So that's an interesting dynamic with him now being the head coach at Nebraska. Uh, a couple really talented running backs like Ahmad Green and Corral Buckhalter, who went on to some pretty impressive pro careers. So I thought that that would be an interesting one, just because also kind of coincided around the same time as this last dance for the Bulls. So I, I thought that was interesting. There could be some interesting parallels that could be compared to both of those teams. Oh, yeah. I think it, it, it fits in really well with that time period, for sure. It, and, I mean, the storylines around that team are huge. You know, you think about the big names on all of those different Nebraska teams, but just sort of the story arc for, you know, Bill Cow or... Sorry, Bill Callahan. Jesus. You know, you think about that story arc for Tom Osborne there and the fact that, you know, he comes so close. He comes so close. And you can look at his career from being Bob Devaney's assistant on those national championship teams in 72 and 73 in this, like, leading up, leading up, and finally hitting the mountaintop and hell, you've got your first two episodes right there, you know. Yeah, I mean, very similar to the story structure that we got in The Last Dance with how long it took Jordan to break through his his struggles against the Pistons um, and before that, the Celtics, uh, running into the dynastic Celtics himself before finally breaking through and, and winning like he was able to win. So, yeah, I, I think the parallels between those two are really fascinating, particularly because you know, we're talking about the 97-98 Bulls that coincided with this 97 Nebraska team that ended um, Tom Osborne's last team. Well, I, you know, I, I obviously think it'd be a brilliant story fit for this sort of treatment. I'm going to go back a century earlier from you, John. You know, you mentioned this 97 Nebraska team as sort of the end of that era, and... In 1897, I think Yale kind of hit its last gasp as, you know, the truly transcendent, dominant force in college football. Um, I've been writing a lot about the earlier period recently, doing some of these irreverent takes around early college football here at Saturday Blitz, and, you know... Up until that 1897 season, Yale is the dominant force. Obviously, you know, they have Walter Camp in the 70s and early 1880s on the team. And then he becomes the coach while he's still working at a watch fact or a clock factory there in New Haven. <laughs> and 
you know, basically writing dozens of books and, you know, helping frame the rules of football as we know them today. But he leaves the team after the 1892 season, I believe it is. Yeah, 1892. You know, it's his fifth year there in town. He ends up going, what is it? It's a ridiculous, like, 67-2 and over five seasons at Yale. He wins national championships as a coach there in 1888, 1891, 1892. He also wins what was, you know, considered the Intercollegiate Football Association, uh, you know, sort of title at the time in 1890 or finishes in a tie for it um he also goes on to coach at stanford later but after 1892 you see yale kind of hold on for the next five years in this sort of last gasp fashion and whether or not they can continue to be a relevant team you know walter camp leaves on top that team goes 13 and 0 they outscore their opponents 429 to nothing over those 13 games. So, you know, they, they outscore their opponents, what is that, 34 to nothing on average every single game and don't allow a point. Um, you know, the following season, William Rhodes takes over the team. They end up losing to Princeton in their final Thanksgiving game of the season. Um, and, you know, that's at a period where Princeton and Yale regularly played for the national title in that final game. So the fact that they lose 6 nothing isn't entirely crazy. They come back the following season and beat Princeton 24-0 in that Thanksgiving game. Or it's the week, actually the Saturday after Thanksgiving that year, interestingly enough. Um... But, you know, they go 16-0 and in Rhodes' second season there, win the national championship. Rhodes retires. John Hartwell takes over. They go 13-0-2. There are two draws coming against the Boston Athletic Association, which technically isn't even a college. So, you know, this was the time, obviously, when you looked for any any opponent you could. And it counted on the schedule, but, you know, they draw, they have a scoreless tie against the Boston Athletic Association. They also tie 6-6 at Brown, um, but still finish, you know, with at least a share of the national championship. 1896, you know, they have the matchup against Princeton effectively lines up as the national championship game again. You know, Yale loses, but then 1897 is basically the last time that they win a share of the national championship. They end up tying Army 6-6. They end up tying Harvard on the road, scoreless, you know, in Cambridge. Um, Both of those games were on the road. They play Princeton at home, beat them 6-0, and finish the season 9-0-2. This is Frank Butterworth's first season. His second season, they go 9-2. and two. They lose to both Princeton and Harvard in their final two games of the year. Butterworth is out. James Rogers, his first season. They lose to Columbia and Princeton, and they tie against Harvard. So 
you know, they finish 7-2-1. and one. And you see sort of these records, you know, in 1900, Malcolm O'Brien comes in and they, they end up going 12-0 and and win a national championship. But 1897 is really that last period where, one, you see sort of Princeton and Yale juxtaposed against one another as, you know, sort of the twin titans of the sport. And... In the second case, it's sort of those last fleeting glories of the Walter Camp era. You know, he leaves town in 1892, goes to Stanford, and it basically tapers off from there. You know, you have a couple more, at least, claims at a national title. Obviously, this was an era where a lot of these were selected retroactively and based around, you know, whatever formula different... NCAA-approved selectors decided to come up with. Um, and we don't necessarily have all the math around that. But, you know, it is what it is. And, and it, at, at the time, the big three, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, were obviously the badass big three. There's a reason they were called the big three. They were called it in the press at that time. So... You know, it, it was acknowledged that these were the best teams. And, you know, they invented the game. They helped disseminate the game. And this was really the last time when they held an exclusive place atop the sport. Because, you know, Yale wins in 1900. You see Yale, Princeton, and Harvard all have some kind of say in the discussion over the next couple decades. But really... You know, by this point, you also see Michigan sort of rising. You see some of these other teams starting to come up as well. And so that would be their last dance for the quote-unquote Ivy League before it was the Ivy League. Yeah, that's a quintessential Zach pick right there. I love it. So, yeah, that's definitely fascinating. I I approve. <laughs> And, you know, leading into that, I'm just going to keep going because I, I already alluded to this team, but I think a lot of this ground gets seeded to, to places like Michigan. You know, Fielding Yost shows up at Michigan in, oh God, what year is it? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, I'm not going to think off the top of my head. I'm going to look this up for a second, but, you know, Fielding Yost is one of those names that's, quintessential Michigan man, even though, you know, he's a West Virginia graduate and a Lafayette, you know, he also plays for a year at Lafayette there, here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but, you know, he bounces around a lot early in his career. He spends a year at Ohio Wesleyan. He spends a year at Nebraska. He spends a year at Kansas. He spends a year at Stanford. You know, once uh, Walter Camp is done with his time there. He spends a year at San Jose State as well as, at, you know, he basically coaches at both schools at the same time as Stanford and San Jose State because, you know, both of them are listed as 1900. So he's bouncing between the farm and the South Bay. Fascinating. But in 1901, he gets his job at Michigan, and he's there for 25 of the next 26 years. He takes off the 1924 season, but... He's there from 1901 to 1923 and then 25 and 26. 
But I think really the story that you have to look at here are those first four seasons that that Fielding Yo shows up. And it's interesting because you can show a slow burn afterward because this is really the complete opposite story. This is a peaking way early in your career story. You know, he shows up at Michigan in 1901. They go 11-0. Completely run the table. They, oh boy, you know, they, they, what is the average score? I'm trying to, they, they, you know, they didn't let anybody score, but they go 550 to nothing and, and uh, in 11 games. So 55 to nothing is their average score. They're almost a point a minute team. Um, this is the team that played in the inaugural Rose Bowl and clobbered Stanford 49 to nothing. So they were under their season average beating Stanford in that game. And... Um, you know, over the next four seasons, or over the next three seasons, they don't, uh, you know, lose. They don't lose. This team just keeps winning. They finally allow points in their second season that Yost is there. You know, they end up going 11-0, uh, scoring 644 points in 11 games, so... Scoring more than a point a minute in this case. and uh, But they allow 12 points. They allow a touchdown in two different games. Their third season under Yost, 565-6 to six is the average score. They go 11-0-1. The one draw coming against Minnesota on the road, 6-6, in front of 30,000 fans there in Minneapolis at Northrop Field. And this fourth season, you know, they go 10-0 and 0 again. So they've basically drawn, you know, they've had, what is it, one tie, 43 wins in 44 games, and have allowed 18, 18, 24 points in that time. Um, you know, and after that, you know, they were declared national champions by some selector in all four of these seasons. And I think what's interesting about this, though, is, like, Fielding Yost is remembered as this incredible legend at Michigan, as well he should be. Don't get me wrong. He won six national championships there. But he won them in 1901, 1902, 1903, 1904, and then 1918 and 1923. So he, he, he hits the jackpot again late in his career. But over the time that Michigan decides to leave what's then called the Western Conference and then come back in at 1917 when it's, you know, formulating as the Big Ten again, um, they're kind of out there in the this is a team that regularly loses two, three games a season or, you know, has a tie in three different games a season. There's like the 1910 Michigan team goes 3-0-3. Oh, well, that's exciting. But, you know, the thing is, is Yost puts together these point-a-minute teams, but it's only a four-year flash. And then he has another 21 years at the school. Like, how do you continue living as a legend 
after you've basically sealed your legend and still have two decades to your career. That's the story I want to see. Yeah, I think it's always fascinating when you have coaches who are able to adapt and win in different eras, and definitely Philbin Jones was able to do that. So I think the being able to see that transition from the early 1900s into the 1920s where he was still able to win big is definitely a story that I would love to know more about for sure. Um, it reminds me, honestly, like not that this is on my list, but a quick aside of, of Bear Bryant swapping from, you know, the dominance that Alabama had in the 60s, and then, you know, they fell off for a while in the late 60s, early 70s, and they adapt to the wishbone, and they went a bunch in the mid to late 70s again. So that kind of stuff is always fascinating to me. It's always, it takes truly great coaches to admit when, you know, they don't have it like they did, and they, you know, update their offenses, defenses, whatever it takes to be able to stay on top or get back on top. So I think that's interesting. Um, for my last choice of this first segment, I went with – 2008 USC, which was the um, next to last season Pete Carroll coached in Los Angeles before leaving to go to the Seattle Seahawks. And, you know, other than the, what, 2016 USC team, I think, finished top five and won the Rose Bowl with Clay Hilton, this is one of the last great USC teams we've seen. The Trojans just haven't been the same since Pete Carroll left L.A., for Seattle, um, and this 08 USC team didn't win the national title and early season loss to Oregon State that kind of derailed their attempt at getting back to the top of the mountain, but they finished number three in the country that season um, in the final AP poll, and, you know, obviously we get some backstory on Pete Carroll winning the two national titles at USC in 2003 and 2004, um, you know, a coach that didn't have a lot of supporters when he first became the USC coach after some failed tenures in the National Football League, the first go-around. So I think it's interesting. I think it would be interesting, too, to also get everything that happened in the aftermath of Carroll's tenure with the Reggie Bush scandal and the Heisman being stripped and everything that's developed into making USC what they are right now. Because there was that stretch from, you know, 2000, what, 2001, 2002-ish through 2008 – that was just a dominant stretch for, for USC, one of the best stretches in college football history. So I think that would definitely be – obviously we've seen um, a 30-for-30 30 30 on this era of USC the, around that, but getting uh, an in-depth documentary on this last great USC team I think would also be worth it and, and definitely interesting, particularly with everything going on off the field and Carroll ultimately – leaving after the next season and going to the NFL and then having a ton of success in the NFL when not a lot of people thought he was going to be able to. Well, I, I agree. I think this is a fascinating story as well. And I think what's fun about this sort of extended multi, multi-part documentary format that you could play with with this is that you can get the voices of other people around the Pac-10 at the time as well, you know? I'd love to hear what guys like Mike Bellotti and Mike Riley are saying about Pete Carroll at the time, you know, because before Carroll comes in and resurrects USC, 
the Pacific Northwest is where it's at in the Pac-10. You know, the 0000-01 seasons, you have, in 0000, you have Washington, Oregon, and Oregon State all finish in the top 10 of both polls. And 01 is the season where, you know, Nebraska pips both Colorado and Oregon for that spot against Miami in the national title game. And I think... Those are really interesting in terms of, you know, the way it shifted power back south in this conference in a way it wasn't at that that point. So I think it'd be fun to get all of that in there. I think you could have a hell of a documentary. On that note, let's take a quick break, everybody. We're going to step aside for a second. Let you take one more quick rest. Grab yourself another drink. We're going to be right back. Offer up the rest of our picks. Stay tuned. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We've been talking about The Last Dance, the recent ESPN documentary, still in progress, looking at the 97-98 Chicago Bulls team, and that dynasty, the dual three-peat, that, you know, and everything that led up to all of that. And we're picking our college football dynasties that we'd love to see a similar treatment given to in terms of this multi-part documentary deep dive. Um, you know, maybe with a little bit less of the branding considering, you know, Jordan is about the only thing that could have that kind of brand, but... You know, in general, that kind of documentary. So, we've offered up our first three picks in the previous segment as to what we'd like to see this given to. And let's dive into our last three. Let's just just go to it. I'm going to throw one out there for you, John. You know, I mentioned some of these early ones. I think one that we'd be remiss not to talk about is Notre Dame in 1930, you know. Uh, Newt Rockney's last season with that team. It, this is the, you know, the year where they win their their final national championship. They go nineteen games undefeated it over two seasons and win 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 national championships in nineteen twenty nine and nineteen thirty. He ends up, you know, his final game is at USC clobbers the rival Trojans 27 to nothing there at the Coliseum in front of, you know, 74,000 fans. And the, the game before that wins against Army 7-6 in front of 110,000 at Soldier Field. And then a couple months later, he's dead in a plane crash. And the years after that, you know, Notre Dame really tapers off in a hurry, you know. Hunk Anderson takes over right after that, and he goes 6-2-1, you know, he's 6-0-1, his only tie against Northwestern early in the season, you know, goes nil-nil against the Wildcats, but then wins his next five games before losing to USC and Army in both of those rivalry games late in the season. Again, loses to Pittsburgh and USC in his second season there. By his third season, they've gone 3-5-1. and one. He's out of town. Elmer Layden comes in, one of the you know four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
can't turn this thing around. He gets four seasons, five seasons there. Actually, Jesus, seven. Before Frank Lakey finally comes in in 1941. But, you know, you basically have a decade of death for Notre Dame football for a program that was the most ascendant in college football under Newt Rockney. And I think, you know, on one hand, it's really fascinating because you can look at Rockney's story, right? And you can say, this is a team that, uh, you know, won those 1929 and 1930 national championships. He also won one in 1924 when Notre Dame actually went and played in the Rose Bowl as well and also won. But, you know, before that season in 1928, he goes five and four. It's interesting. You can look at certain segments who are wondering if, have things turned the corner? You know, has, has your former national champion coach who did it only four years earlier kind of lost what it takes? And, you know, he obviously proves it wrong over the next couple of years. And the way we look back at history, he, you know, his mystique is is unrivaled in terms of college football personalities, I would say. Just, you know, sort of the mythology that's formulated around New Rockney is unparalleled. You can't talk about somebody else. Walter Camp, who I mentioned in the previous segment, doesn't stack up. You know, and he's the father of college football. People call him, he's the father of college football, but it doesn't quite stack up. So, I'd love to see that treatment. Yeah, that's that's another great pick. Um I went a little out of order by accident, but who really cares because no order anyway. Um, The next one for me was 2003 Miami, which could be considered the last great Miami Hurricanes team when you think about it as well. Uh, This team ended up finishing number five overall that season. They lost two games in November back-to-back that derailed any hope they had of playing for a third straight or playing in a third straight national championship game after obviously losing to Ohio State in the title game the year before, the year after the 2001 dominant Miami Hurricanes team um, won the national championship. So, you know, Larry Coker in his third season with the Hurricanes, this is the last year Miami's in the Big East as well, so it's fascinating. there as well as they moved to the ACC the next season and then immediately started dropping off into the Miami that we now have come to to um, expect every year, which is mediocrity, which, you know, there was a period of time, particularly in the early 2000s and obviously through the, the 80s and 90s as well, um, where this Miami was the team in college football. They were the coolest team in college football, and a lot of years they were the best team in college football. Um, so I think it would be interesting. Obviously, this 03 Miami team isn't as stacked as that 01 Miami team we've talked about a lot, but there's still a lot of talent on this 2003 um, squad. Um, defensively, still guys like Sean Taylor, Jonathan Vilma, Vince Wilfork, um, Frank Gore was the running back for that team after waiting his time behind the Lewis McGahees and the like. Um, 
the years before. So another just a great Miami team that, you know, came up just short, but, you know, won a third straight Big East title, went 11-2 overall, won an Orange Bowl over Florida State. And, you know, that's the last time Miami's won 11 games in a season. They've won double digits one time since then, and that was 2017 when Mark Rick led them to a 10-3 record, and that's been the pinnacle of Miami football in the near two decades since that 03 season. So they would be really interesting to to get a – obviously we've seen the U documentary that really focused more on the, the beginning of the Hurricanes dynasty in the – in the 80s and 90s and then into the 2000s stuff. But I'd be really interested to see more of the end because it wasn't just the end of that Coker run for Miami. It was really the end of Miami football as we know it because the Hurricanes just haven't been anywhere close to the same team. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether they'll ever be that again. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think 03 is that sort of last, last swagger that you really get. I mean... The turnover chain obviously didn't exist yet, but let's let's be honest. Those nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties Miami teams didn't need a friggin' turnover chain to have their damn swagger when they did what they did. Um, you know, it's an approximation to try to capture some of that mystique again, but. You know, you mentioned that 2017 Miami team, and even as they started the year 10-0, and 0, people were wondering when the wheels were going to fall off of this train. And boy, did they. And boy, did they ever, you know. <laughs> Obviously, I don't think everyone necessarily called for it to happen at Pittsburgh there on Thanksgiving weekend. That was a Black Friday game, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, I think losing to what was a number one Clemson team at the time was, you know, less crazy to see happening, even though they were ranked, you know, two the week before and ranked seventh coming into the ACC championship game, even losing by 35 against the Tigers, nobody was shocked by that really. And then, you know, they go into that Orange Bowl against Wisconsin, and the Badgers spanked them. Let's be honest about it. You know, they won by 10. It could have probably been more. So, you know, the wheels really come off. But it it does, it's amazing how you can see something and the genesis of those wheels coming off really is a decade and a half in the past. And I think that's what that 03 season really shows us with the way that, uh, you know, they lost those back-to-back games. It was against, um, oh God, I'm blanking on it now. Uh, it was Virginia Tech was one it, of them, and I want to say Pittsburgh. It might have been. 03 was Tennessee. They lost to a, the number number 18 Tennessee in a non-conference game at the Orange Bowl, 10-6. Yeah, the week before they lost at Virginia Tech. Yeah, the week before they lost 
you know, that was a top 10 matchup against Virginia Tech. So both of the teams they lost to were ranked teams. It's not like they lost to scrubs by any means, but they lost 31-7 to against Virginia Tech. And that really is sort of that bye-bye swagger moment. You know, they win against Syracuse. They win against Rutgers. They even beat Pittsburgh 28-14, and that's a ranked Pittsburgh team at the time. Um, You know, to be fair, neither Virginia Tech nor West Virginia in the season ranked because they both finished 8-5, so take that for what you will. Um, But, you know, they also defeat a a top-five or a top 10 Florida State team twice over the course of the season. They beat them in non-conference play in their rivalry game on October 11th, and then they play them again in the Orange Bowl and beat them again on New Year's Day. But yeah, I, I think really you point to that November 1st game and you build out both ways in that documentary. Yep. Absolutely, it's definitely interesting. I'm gonna go again. Go for it. I'm gonna go back to back. Shoot. Uh, give you a, give you a break. Um, the other one that I was gonna talk about before I realized I'd skipped Miami. Um, in the same state, the Sunshine State was 2009 Florida, um, and I think there's a lot of interesting things about that Florida team. Obviously, coming off the 2008 national title, the 09 Gators were heavy favorites to repeat as national champions. They were absolutely loaded, uh, bringing back, obviously, Tim Tebow was the headliner at quarterback, former Heisman winner, and, you know, it was his final season in Gainesville, so as much as he had won in his time with the Gators, already won two national titles in 06 and 08, it seemed kind of inevitable that he would go out on top. He just seemed like that once-in-a-generation college football player whose final season he's not going to be denied. However, sports aren't always like they seem in movies, and the script doesn't always end the way that people expect it to. So that Florida team was obviously a great team. They went undefeated in the regular season, and they got mollywhopped by Alabama in the SEC title game before uh, rolling over. I believe it was Cincinnati in the Sugar Bowl, if I remember right. Um... You know, I think the fascinating part, other than the fact there's just a, a fascinating list of characters on that Florida team with Tebow, with Percy Harvin, with Aaron Hernandez, um, and then Urban Meyer, obviously, as the coach. This was his next to last season in Gainesville. He had the health problems following the SEC championship game as well that was in news. It seemed like he might retire after that season. He ended up giving it one more go. But the 2010 Florida team wasn't nearly as good as the previous iterations had been. He ended up retiring for what, a year, I guess. He took the 2011 season off before coming back in 2012 at Ohio State. Uh, but I think it's fascinating because that Florida team was genuinely a great team. Uh, but it's interesting because at the same time we see the Florida dynasty falling, we see the Alabama dynasty beginning, right? Because the 08 Bama team made it to the Sugar Bowl and lost to Utah, the 2009 Bama team, after losing to Florida the year before the SEC title game, gets revenge on that same Gators team, wins the national title, and that, you know, begins the the Alabama dynasty that we still kind of see at the moment, um, winning five national titles during the span 
of years and since then. So I think that's really interesting because you get, like I said, you can kind of con- com- compare and contrast the two teams as Florida, you know, reaches their crescendo and starts falling downward while Alabama starts rising up at the same time. And like I said, just a, a ton of interesting things on a, a ton of interesting players on that Florida roster. Everyone knows, I think, that Urban Meyer wasn't the strictest when it came to disciplining his players either. So there'd probably be quite a bit of interesting stories from those um, from that 09 Florida team. Oh man, yeah, that would be a great team to to kind of look at. And the thing I love most about the idea of using the 09 season as sort of that last hurrah or that changing of the guard is getting to look back, getting to look ahead. Either way, Steve Spurrier was coaching in the SEC at the time, and you get to have him on that documentary as long as you do that soon enough. You know, he's at South Carolina, but he's a Gator for life. Let's, you know, he owns that. Everyone in, in Columbia knew that when he coached the Gamecocks. So, you know, he was in the same division and people were willing to look past that fact. You win a Heisman at a place, you kind of can't get past it, though. Um, but damn, would it be fun to have his stories about coaching against Urban Meyer. That, that that in itself would be worth the price of admission for that documentary. Absolutely. <laughs> any Anytime you can get Spurrier on anything, frankly, any of these documentaries that you get, a quote from Spurrier just for the hell of it. Oh, yeah. Maybe he'll take a subtle jab at Peyton Manning for no real reason. You know, I don't... Whatever he wants to do. Exactly. Yeah. And boy, we we if we were producing that documentary, we'd let him just go. So Have you seen the, the quote that he had about Peyton Manning coming back for his senior season at Tennessee? He was like, Peyton Manning came back for a senior season because he wanted to be the first three-time winner of the Citrus Bowl in yep. <laughs> it, it, It's That's beautiful. So it, it, you know, it, it's those kind of digs that made Spurrier throughout his career because he was jovial while he did it. And, you know, he was going to rib you for on-the-field shit, but he was not going to go lowball. And that was always the fun thing about him. Well, I think I have a couple more picks, so I think it's about my time to go again. Um, I got two left. I'll hold that one off for last. I think, you know, the one I want to go with next is 1941 in Minnesota. Seems a little crazy, but this was really sort of the the end of the Bernie Beerman era at Minnesota. This was a team that, you know, when he showed up there, he he ended his time in Tulane after 1931, after winning three straight Southern Conference championships with Tulane before they joined the the SEC as a charter member. Um, and he went to Minnesota. And, you know, his first season there, it's five and three in 1932. But then he wins the Big Ten in 1933 goes on a string of three straight national championships from 1934 through 1936. You know, has a couple of off years between 1937 and 1939. Um, And in those three off years, he wins the Big Ten twice. So, 
you know, shame of an off year to finish in the top 10 of the AP poll each of those years. Um, but, you know, he comes back with a vengeance in 1940 and 1941. The Golden Gophers go 16-0 and over those two years and finish number one in the AP poll both times. And then World War II hits, and Bierman leaves Minnesota to go coach the Iowa pre-flight team. And, you know, the, you know coaching future aviators... And he comes back to Minnesota in 1945 after the war is over, but it's just never the same again, you know? His best two seasons are 48 and 49 when he goes 7-2 and two each of those years, but he only finishes third in the Big Ten, um, you know, finishes 16th in the polls in 1948, finishes 8th in 1949, but never has this sort of push for a national championship again. And I think it's one of those ultimate what ifs is what if World War II doesn't happen, Bierman never leaves Minneapolis and Minnesota continues on the trajectory they were on where they won five national championships in eight years. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. It's, it's so fascinating how the war back then just so affected college football and such a, a difference between what we see today and what we saw, you know, 75 years ago. Um, yeah. So I'll do my last one and then you can finish us off if that works for you. Go for um, it. The last one that I had was 2010 Ohio state. Um, that was, you know, Coming right on the heels of the 09 Florida dock, we'll go right into the 2010 Buckeyes dock. Um, Jim Trestle's last year at Ohio State. Um, another another in the, the line that didn't expect it to be his last season at, at Ohio State, much like in a different circumstance, but like Woody Hayes back in 78. Um, this Buckeyes team went 12-1, and capping off a, a, a tenure for for Trestle where Ohio State went 106 and 22 um, over his what 10 years in Columbus. Um, and that's counting the fact that they went seven and five in year one. So just really dominated the Big Ten. And we won what six straight Big Ten titles uh, during that during that stretch from 05 to 2010. Won the national title in 02, finished consensus top five. Five out of those last six seasons he was there. So a truly great Ohio State team went 12-1 and one in 2010. Um, and then the really fascinating thing is everything that happened in the offseason following that year, right? Because the big scandal with the, the trading um, Big Ten championship rings or whatever it was for tattoos um, that led to, you know, the allegations against the Buckeyes leading to sanctions and leading to Jim Trestle um, being dismissed from Ohio State and then leading into a separate dominant stretch for Ohio State when after a year where Luke Fickle took the interim job for the Buckeyes, Urban Meyer comes to town and replicates the success that Jim Trestle had in Columbus. So 
Um, I think Trestle was one of the more, to me, underappreciated great coaches. That tenure run he had at Ohio State after just, you know, obviously dominating at Youngstown State before getting to Ohio State. A lot of people were a little bit wary of that kind of move for the Buckeyes, bringing him up um, from what we now consider the FCS. So I think, to me, like I said, one of the more underappreciated great coaches because he was able to have that success at two different levels. Um, And then, I mean, I think now we look at it, too, 10 years later, how ridiculous it feels that this is what ended his coaching career with the Buckeyes the tattoo scandal just seems so minor when you look at it now compared to, I guess, popular narrative 10 years ago. I, I mean, I remember 10 years ago not thinking it was that big of a deal either, but it feels even less so a decade later. And I think that little bit of ridiculousness added into that doc would just send it over the top. Oh, yeah. I, I think really, you know, there's always a risk when you do history of trying to frame things around the morality that, you know, dominates the present era that you're ma- in which you're making that documentary rather than the, the stories about the period that you're telling. And, but you're right, though. Even then, I, I, I'm sure if you go into the dregs of cyberspace and search hard enough on some defunct site somewhere, you can probably find a link that you can punch into the Wayback Machine on archive.org and find an article I wrote about that sometime way back when. Um, and yeah, it looks it, it looked freaking stupid back then. It, it looked just as stupid then as it does now. And... You know, ultimately, we we look at this, and the case is, you know, shit. The players should have never had to trade merchandise that they wore in a game. Like these players sweated and bled through this equipment. It ought to be theirs by then to do whatever the hell they want with it, really. Um, but you know, we look at it now and it seems that way, but back then, even then it was kind of ridiculous. So I'd love to see that treatment. I'd love to see all of these guys, you know, talk about what really went down. You know, we're past the point where the NCAA can issue any sort of additional retroactive sanctions. Um, you know, negotiate with ESPN, do whatever you have to do to let them, you know, speak with impunity, because I'd love to hear all that story. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, especially with the things that people have gotten away with since then, (laughs) um, that the NCAA hasn't been able to really do much about. So I I would be definitely fascinated uh, to get more in-depth discussion about that. Well, moving on to my last pick, you know, this is another one where I picked the season, um, you know, I could choose any number of seasons. Honestly, the one I would probably pin here is 1958. I think when we were originally talking about it, I kind of vacillated between 56 and 57, because that's when the streak died. Or, the, you know, the streak lived and the streak died. 
And obviously I'm talking about Bud Wilkinson here in the Oklahoma Sooners. Uh, this was, you know, Wilkinson takes over the team in 1947 for uh, Jim Tatum, I think it was. And he basically creates a big six, big seven, big eight. You know, it, it, it slowly grew over time, but what we ended up coming to know is the Big Eight. He dominates that conference. This is the kind of run that you don't see many places over history. He wins 13 conference championships in a row um, between 1947 and 1959. Uh, the Sooners win national championships in 1950, 1955, and 1956. They put together a couple of the longest winning streaks in college football history. Um, you know, the one between 1954 and 1957, or 1953 and 1957, I think it's like 47 games total that they, they win. Ultimately, Notre Dame brings him down in 1957, but even then, you know, Oklahoma's back with a vengeance. They finished 10-1 and in both 57 and 58, win the Orange Bowl. They're a top-five team both years, and this is, you know, immediately on the heels of back-to-back -back national championships in 55 and 56. And then they win the national championship again in 1959, but this is a 7-3 and three team. And honestly, no Bud Wilkinson team in his last five years there loses fewer than three games in a year. Um, actually, no, that's not true. His last team there in 1963 goes 8-2. And, you know, they finish as a top 10 team each of his last two years, but he doesn't win the conference that final season. It's... You know, it's kind of a sad end, again, after a high, a high launch point. And to go 13 years in a row at the top of your conference, to win three national championships in that span, to have two more undefeated seasons on top of that, that you don't get recognized at least a part of the national championship. It, it, he had a hell of a run. And... I'd love to see the Wilkinson treatment. I've had, you know, I've read a couple of good, great, great works on Wilkinson. I have a buddy who's currently, you know, I, I keep goading him to push it further, but he wrote his PhD dissertation on Wilkinson and sort of the development of Oklahoma as a modern space and um, sort of Wilkinson is sort of a political catalyst for Oklahoma that, it, you know, on so many levels, this guy is just a fascinating story. And I, 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 I can't see why you wouldn't want to talk about that Oklahoma team for 10, 10 episodes. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'd definitely be fascinating. I, I like our list. I like the balance between the eras. So I think that that really worked out. Uh, and interestingly enough, when we talked about this beforehand, everybody, we didn't have any overlap on these lists, which almost always happens. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting that we went with six different teams each. Yeah, you know, I think 
Um, you know, a lot of what I've been doing around early college football history has me thinking the earlier the better, it, especially for this kind of documentary treatment, because I think we we often privilege the stories where we can get live voices on there and people that we can still interview and that's awesome. You know, the, the sooner you can capture those stories before these people start dying, the better, obviously. But I think that shouldn't preclude us from telling stories of, you know, these deceased teams where, you know, the only place you can get this information is in the historical archives and the only real video or, you know... That you can you can shoot of this as Ken Burns style panning across a photo in the case of some of these you know eighteen ninety seven and nineteen early nineteen hundreds teams, um, but you know I I think in general I I don't know about you college football fans out there but I'd watch a documentary about just about anything right now like I think about for instance the Marshall team that went you know undefeated in 1999 but got left out of the BCS and you know their run of dominance in the FCS leading up to that point I'd love to watch that you know that just as much or you know any number of these stories I think we could you could probably hit us up on Twitter right now at zbagalki at jlmitchell93 and you could probably throw dozens of, of concepts at us but you know please do throw us your list of six uh let us know which documentaries you'd like to see which ones you agree with and disagree and we'll be back next week to talk more college football john because you know no matter what's happening out there in the greater world we were in the off season anyway right that's true it's not uh it's not real yet in terms of college football potentially not being played because we're used to it not being played um, in April. So we're still good. Yeah, I mean, you didn't get to go out for spring games this year, everybody. I know people here in in Center County, Pennsylvania, were, you know, kind of bummed that the blue and white game wasn't happening. I know that's something that's a downer for campuses and fan bases all around the country, but ultimately... We're in the same boat of the the long doldrums of the off season that we were going to be in anyway. So, hang in there. We'll have more fun content for you, looking at some of these fun stories, thought experiments, whatever else we can offer you. Any last words, John? No, I'm 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 good over here. Uh, everybody keeps keep staying safe, and hopefully, we'll be able to watch college football together again soon. Yeah, we look forward to getting to talk to you about live action once it finally happens again. But for now, we'll keep coming at you with some of these these looks back, these retrospectives, and keeping you updated on the, the current news with the coronavirus and the COVID-19 stories on campuses around the country. Until next Wednesday, though, we're going to sign off for now. You have a good rest of your week. Stay safe, stay healthy, 